The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. So as I'm sure you are aware, we are continuing our, continuing our study of the, uh, the minor prophet of Jonah. We're going to be in chapter 4 tonight, and uh, I believe, God willing, this will be our final final study here in this book, and it's, um, it's sad to me. I, I enjoy, I've really enjoyed our time in, in the book of Jonah. I, I enjoy, I'll be honest with you, I really enjoy preaching narratives. Um, I, it, it reminds me a little bit of our time back in the Gospel of Mark, and um, that was a very, very sweet time to me personally, and so um, I'm sad to see that we'll be concluding our time in Jonah. It, it seems, I've told you, we're trying to work through these chronologically as best as I can discern that. With, with the help, of course, of men much smarter and wiser than me. It seems as though the next prophet to come is probably Hosea. He was a contemporary of Jonah, and I think that's probably where God's going to lead us. And, of course, that's a fantastic story. Those of you that know the story of, uh, of Hosea, it is... Um, if there's ever a book in the Bible that overwhelms you with God's steadfast love and, and his pursuit of those who he has set his eye upon it's it's that so I believe that's where God's going to be going to be leading us next but for tonight we conclude this story of Jonah and if you've been with us you'll recall that Jonah is a prophet of the Lord and he's been sent by God to go and preach to the people of Nineveh in Assyria now of course Jonah didn't like this call as you all know and therefore he ran the other direction and we've not yet been told why this is We've not yet been told why Jonah is running. We just know that he disobeyed, that instead of heading east to Nineveh, he got in a boat and he headed the opposite direction for a place called Tarshish. Now, you all know the story that there upon the, upon the waters as he was in a boat, this appears to have been a cargo boat headed for Tarshish, that there was a great storm that whipped up upon the ocean. But we're not left to wonder what caused this storm because the scripture tells us that the God of the universe, the God from whom Jonah was fleeing had hurled a great wind upon the ocean we know that this storm was so bad that the boat was breaking apart and the sailors began to panic cry out to their gods eventually they found this prophet this wayward prophet sleeping in the bottom of the boat they caused him to rise and call out to his God after some in inquiry Jonah confessed to the men that he was running from the living God, the God of heaven and earth, the God who makes everything that is, that the only way to quiet the storm, the only way to spare their life is to throw him overboard. The men, after much protesting, they reluctantly agree. They begged to God that he would forgive them, that they would not, God would not hold this man's death against them. They hurled him into the ocean, and the storm stopped. That was the first cliffhanger. We came back the next week to find that while this man was sinking lower, lower, lower into the depths of the ocean and his life was fading away, that God had appointed. He had created and appointed a great fish to swallow this man. It was there within the belly of this fish that this man cries out to God and says, whatever you tell me to do, I will do. The next cliffhanger. We came back the next day to find that, excuse me, the next Lord's Day to find that God had caused this whale this great fish to vomit the man up on dry dry land and he went and he preached the message that God had given him to preach and the message was 40 days in Nineveh will be destroyed you remember that God had told this man that the sins of Nineveh had piled up so high they had reached his ears in heaven he was sending this man to call them and with implicit within this call was the idea that they might repent that they might repent and be spared of the destruction that was going to come upon them but all throughout this narrative so far, we've seen the hand of God upon this reluctant prophet. He would never remove it. Just about the time that you thought things couldn't get more tense, God would press down further. I told you, I think it was two weeks ago as we were watching the storm continue to intensify that it reminded me of one of David's psalms, a time when the hand of God seemed to be upon him in a very mighty way. His bones were aching and his body was failing. And I told you that despite the fact that all throughout David's life, all throughout the first 41 Psalms, we see David crying out to God saying, God, please don't ever turn your face away from me. Please don't forget me. Please don't leave me here. But I told you that there was one Psalm that was curious to me. That at the end of that Psalm, in the middle of all this heavy handedness from God, it seemed as though King David was asking God, would you turn away for just a little bit and let me breathe? 
Well, I finally took the time to go back and search through and find it. It's at the end of Psalm 39, actually. Verse 10, Psalm 39. Remove your stoke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I might smile again before I depart and am no more. There's a time when God's hand of discipline is upon his children. There's a time when God's hand of instruction is upon his children that we feel the weight so mightily that that presence that we once longed for more than anything else, we, would, we might look upon him and say, God, would you just look away from me a second so that I can die in peace? That this is what Jonah felt in a moment. And yet it was that same presence that he felt that he fled from that was there with him in the belly of the whale. That same presence that was there with him once he was vomited up on shore. That same presence that came to him a second time and said, Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. Now, you recall that we don't know how long it was between when the whale vomited and when Jonah went. Could it have been months? Could it have been a year? Was it immediately? We don't know. But we know that Jonah went and he delivered the message to the people of Nineveh. And we know that they repented in sackcloth and ashes from the greatest down to the livestock, even the king leading out. He was following the example of these men, but then he himself, he created a, or he issued a proclamation that no one was to eat, no one was to even drink water while they fasted and repented and sought God's forgiveness, hoping that perhaps he might relent of this thing that he has promised. So I ask you with that to turn in your Bibles. We're going to read in Jonah. Actually, I'm going to pick this up in chapter 3, verse 10, because I think that sets the stage better for what we're going to see this evening. This is the word of God. When God saw what they did, this is the people of Nineveh, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said to you when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out from the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would come, what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But then dawn came, excuse me, then dawn came up the next day. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you, well to be, do, you do well to be angry for a plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, You pity a plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and so much cattle? And all God's people said, Amen. What a strange ending. Should I not pity the cattle? Every animal lover's dream. Yeah, we know that this is much more than just God showing pity, showing sympathy for livestock. We see right here in verse 10 at the end of chapter 3 that when God saw what they did, he turned from his evil, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, I took great care last week to remind you that the God of the universe has no need of repentance, at least not the way that men repent. We repent, we turn away, we change our mind because we realize that we've done evil. Or perhaps we learn some new information or reassess the information that we receive and realize that our plan was faulty. 
Or maybe we pursue one path and then we realize that our arms just aren't long enough or our resources aren't deep enough to accomplish the thing that we have proposed. Or perhaps there's something along the way that we learn some new information about the way in which the people are responding. And we know with God, this is never the case. All throughout Jonah's book, God, God has made very clear the, his sovereign hand upon the prophet and the people and the universe. That God is providentially controlling all things. How many times have we seen within this narrative the word appointed? Just in these verses we just read. That the God of the universe went through great lengths to great trouble to get this prophet. Could he not have just risen up a prophet from amongst the Ninevites? Couldn't he have called another man that was anxious to be a prophet, that somehow had a soft spot in his heart for the Ninevites to send him there? But no, God was going to send this man no matter how strongly he protested. So we ought not think that somehow God had changed his mind, that somehow something in the Ninevites or in Jonah had changed his plan. This was God's plan all along. I remind you of Jeremiah 18.8 where it says that if God has told a nation that he will destroy them because of their evil, and that if because of that warning their hearts turn and they repent, that he will spare them. That this was God's plan all along. That this is God's fixed nature as one who is both just and righteous and holy and merciful. His disposition towards sinners and his disposition towards those who repent is very much settled in his character. So we see here that he sees what they do, he hears what they do, he knows that they've turned from their evil, and he determined that he will not do it. Praise God that he can use even the most reluctant of prophets. Praise God that the efficacy of a ministry, that God's ability to turn men's hearts, his ability to change men's lives is not dependent upon the power or the precision or even the faithfulness of the preacher. Oh, how many times I've had to remind myself of these words. How thankful I am for these words. How thankful you must be, particularly those of you that have children in your home. You're desperately seeking to raise them up to know the gospel, to love Christ Jesus, to follow him as Lord. I say to you tonight, your child's salvation is not in your hands. God's ability to turn their hearts and cause them to repent, it is not up to you. Now you must be faithful. You will answer to God for what you have done with these children. He has entrusted them to you. And very often we know that the way in which God saves children is he places them in Christian homes, that he turns your heart, that you may keep the gospel ever before their eyes. That's what we say with parents standing right here every time we dedicate one. We shall all answer for what we have done with the children that God has entrusted to us. But their eternity was never, ever, ever in your hands. This frees you from any sense of regret about the past. Again, you will answer to God for what you have done with that time, but the eternal fate of your child rests in the hands of the Almighty God. This releases you from any sense of anxiety or being bound up because you don't have all the answers. It's okay to look at your precious child and say, I just don't know. So we see the ability. This has got to be the greatest mission trip in the history of the world, right? 120,000 people repenting in a moment with just a sentence? There's never been a thing like this. And he was the sorriest prophet that ever lived. The most reluctant missionary that had ever lived. Praise God. We must also remember that this means that a booming ministry, that hundreds, perhaps hundreds of thousands of men coming to repentance does not guarantee that the one who has prophesied that word who has preached that word, is necessarily right with God. That I can't judge myself based on any of the external responses. That doesn't mean that I'm right with God, that God is uh, pleased with me, that my heart is somehow turned towards him, even if hundreds of thousands of men come to repentance because of a word that I utter through my lips. That he can use rocks, he can use donkeys, he can use men that run and end up in the belly of a whale. That I must constantly be searching and examining and questioning my own heart. The scripture goes on, chapter four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Read another translation, it says, but Jonah was deeply offended and furious. This thing was evil. That's, that's the context here. That's the context here. Jonah judged God and found what God to be doing evil 
God, this is an evil and displeasing and wrong thing that you're doing. Isn't that bizarre? God, you're extending mercy and grace to the people that you've caused me to go and preach to. God, you went to all these lengths to get me here. I was in the belly of a whale. I was on a boat. I got vomited up. I made the trip, which isn't an easy trip, by, by the way. I made the trip. I preached the word. The people repented, and I call you evil. I declare what you have done to be wrong. Scripture tells us that the angels in heaven rejoice at the repentance of one sinner. What sound do you think heaven makes when 120,000 repent? And this man pouted. This man declared God to be evil. We're reminded that men can do the right things with all the wrong motives, with completely sour and bitter and begrudging heart, completely missing the goodness that God has for him. God had a plan not just for Nineveh, but for Jonah too. God wasn't just working in the lives of the Ninevites. He was working in the lives of the prophet and all of those who come after him that find that we have a heart like him. We don't know the myriad of ways in which God is working when one man goes to preach a message of repentance to another. And yet we see that this man's heart, he was rooting. He was rooting against success of his own mission. That's how hard his heart was. So verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? See, he's justifying his sin, right? I told you, God, this is why I ran in the first place. Isn't that what we do? We give God all the external circumstances, all the reasons why we sinned. God, it's swell that you forgave me. It's swell that you gave me a second chance. Thank you for sparing me when I was drowning, when I cried out to you. But now let me tell you the reason I did the thing that I did. Sounds like our kids, right? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah has a very orthodox view of God, very accurate and biblical and true view of God. He knows the nature of God, and that's why he ran. You see, when I was a little boy, I always understood the story of Jonah to be about a man that was afraid. We know that the Ninevites were wicked and evil people. They had committed all manner of war crimes. They were vicious, sacrificing even their own people. And so the the take that I had, and I don't know if somebody taught this to me or if it's just the story I made up in my own head, was that Jonah was afraid to go to Nineveh because he thought that when he preached this hard message, they were going to take his life. That's probably the way my mind would be thinking, right? But that's not the story at all. We see Jonah is quite brave. Remember I asked you, whenever those men threw him, whenever the, the sailors or the, the, the shipmen, whenever they threw him overboard, I asked, how did he not cling onto their wrists? How do you allow himself to be thrown overboard knowing I will sacrifice my life so that this men, these men may, may live? He wasn't afraid to die. He's not afraid of God, apparently, because he's going to say some pretty hard things here to God. Jonah wasn't afraid. Jonah just did not want these men to repent. He did not want this destruction that God had declared to be withheld. And so he speaks very true things about God. He knows the character of God. Are these not similar to the words that God had spoken to Moses? Moses wanted to see something about the character of God. These are the ways he had spoken. And then we see that this isn't just words that God speaks about himself. We do see that this is his character. This is the way he interacts with men. Think of the faithfulness, the mercy, the steadfastness of, of God with these rebellious people. Again, this is just about the time when the Assyrians are about to come in and drag the people of Israel off into exile because of their rebellion because of their hard-heartedness, because of their refusal to repent. The people of Israel, more than anybody in all the earth, they knew that God is a merciful God. He had experienced this, not just nationally, but personally. Who has a more front-row seat to God's mercy and his willingness to forgive transgressions than Jonah? He was literally running from God. Remember, I marveled at the fact that Jonah knew exactly what God wanted him to do, and he just wouldn't do it. While the sailors on the boat, they would do whatever God wanted them to do. They just wanted it to be revealed to them. Has there ever been a man that received more mercy than Jonah? Running from God, God sparing him in the belly of a whale, and then giving him a second chance. And yet still, he despised the fact that God would extend that same kind of mercy to these men who had so oppressed 
his people, who had been so vicious? Was it because he judged their sin? Because he perhaps forgot the depravity of his own sin and he judged on a scale because that's what we tend to do, isn't it? There's always somebody worse than us out there. There's always somebody more deserving of God's wrath than we are. Maybe they'd be harder to forgive than me. My sins were just, they were just minor. A couple of white lies, a couple of selfish acts. So maybe it's easy for God to forgive mercy to me. And it's understandable, right? Because I'm a pretty decent guy. I mean well most of the time. But not that guy over there. Or perhaps did Jonah think that God could only be merciful to one nation at a time? It's like football teams that match up, right? I pray to God, you pray to God. He can only be on one of our sides, right? It was beyond Jonah's understanding that God could be working in the lives of every single person that lives. That he was not just God of Israel, that he was God of the universe. He had concern even for these people. But what we see here, this experience of Jonah, this frustration. Now, we know as we get to the end of the story that we know that this was an evil in Jonah's heart, that this was a desire that he would destroy these people. But this idea of frustration by a prophet, it's not unique just to Jonah. We see a number of these prophets because life of a prophet was extremely difficult. You're delivering a message that nobody wanted to hear. Oftentimes, you're delivering a message that might cost you your life. And sometimes you were delivering this message for years and you were looking like a clown. Prophet Jeremiah, he went through great trouble to continue to deliver this message, and people turned on him left and right. And he says this to God, Jeremiah 27, Jeremiah 20, verse 7. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary to hold it in. I cannot. He says, if I could give you up, I would, God. If I could quit speaking this message, I would. Because you have me out here telling people destruction is coming. Quit telling each other peace. Quit saying peace, peace, where there is no peace. You must repent or God will do this thing. Exile is coming. Destruction is coming. And it's not coming, and I'm turning into a laughing stock. Do you ever feel like this? As you preach to men that they must repent or destruction will come, and God continues to seem to enrich them, nothing happens. Their secrets stay hidden. Their, their, their marriages stay together. Their businesses thrive. What are you doing here, God? You're sending me on a fool's errand. You keep telling me to go, and if I could stop, I would, but I can't because it's like a burning fire within my bones. I can't quit talking about you. You know that experience when God just won't let you keep your mouth shut, and man, you wish he would. That's the prophet Jeremiah. It's certainly the prophet Jonah. So what does he say? Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. I don't think Jonah's speaking in hyperbole here. I think the dude wants to die. If that's who you are, God, I'd rather die. I'd rather not live than live in a world where you extend mercy to a people like that. How many times do I warn you? And I hate it that I always say it with a bite because I don't mean to say it with a bite. But how many times do I warn you against saying, if that's who God is, then I wouldn't worship him? I said something this morning that I wish I could take back once I said it. I'd done such a good job of having a nice tone despite talking about something that I was excited about. And then I talked about the fact that people would say, you know, wouldn't God be more glorified if X, Y, Z? And what did I say? Who asked you? Man, I didn't really mean who asked you, but who asked you? The, the point was, the God who is is greater than anything we could ever imagine. We've got to trust that the God who is is greater than anything we could ever build in our own minds, and therefore we come to the word not just saying, I'll settle for what's here. Well, it's okay, I'll overlook his faults because it's true, and I'd rather have what's true and lesser than what's false and greater. No, what is true is greater. What is true is better and more magnificent than anything our minds could ever fathom. And so we are searching for joy when we search for the true God. Right? And so, we must be very careful about setting boundaries around who God can and cannot be. 
we may well find ourselves somewhere just like Jonah. We're good, we're good. That was the Bible app, I'm sure of it. So we must be very careful about setting boundaries around who God can or cannot be because we may well find ourselves up against a God who was not who we created him in our own minds and then we find ourselves pouting. Maybe not wishing for death, but saying I'm not sure I want to live in a world with a God like that. That's where he is. And I want you to see the contrast between Jonah and the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who said, I would forfeit my salvation if the Jewish people could just come to know the Lord. I would have myself cast into hell if it would mean that my brethren would come to salvation. And not only his brethren, but this man who then, who was the supreme, the most zealous of Jews, would then give his life battered and beaten and bruised and imprisoned and bitten by snakes and shipwrecked. Why? To get this message to the Gentiles. He had such a heart for this gospel to get to the world. And do you know why? Look, I don't know that Paul was a swell guy. I have a picture of who Paul was in my mind. I think he was ornery. I think he was probably hard to be around. I think he was probably the kind of guy that if he showed up and was an elder in your church, you would probably duck into the classrooms when you saw him come down the hall because he was fixing to tell you something you didn't want to hear. What changed Paul into a man that was zealous not just for the salvation of Israel but for the salvation of the Gentiles? He received mercy. He saw Christ Jesus as he is. That's what changes a man. Those who receive mercy, we are quick to extend mercy. Those who recognize how much has been forgiven of them, how much destruction we are owed, You'll become a funnel real quick instead of a basin. What did I pray right here? Dear God, make us a people who are quick to forgive, quick to extend mercy, quick to assume the best about each other. I, I know there's a baseball game, and some of y'all are probably watching the clock, wondering if I'm going to get out in time. I'm not. It's not the point to this, tonight's message, but I need you to hear me tell you this, and I need you to spread the word. We must be a people who assumes the best about each other. That are quick to extend mercy when it's not owed, when it's not due, when it's not justified by any earthly standard, particularly amongst this, amongst this church family. So, Jonah, unlike Paul, he would rather die than live in a world where God would forgive such wicked people. Verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? You notice that God doesn't even answer Jonah's question. He doesn't even respond, really. He just kind of glosses over it. Do you do well? Are you right to be angry here? Is this, this is really what you're going with here, right? All that we've been through so far in this story, and your response, you know I'm going to put this in the Bible, right? And people are going to hear about this. And so your response is, I'd rather be dead than do that. Do you do right to be angry? doesn't even dignify his stupid words. He's going to say it again in verse 9. He's going to give him another chance in verse 9. And at that point, Jonah doubles down. Verse 5, Jonah went out to the city, excuse me, out of the city, and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, some people think that maybe this is a flashback, that maybe this is setting the stage for this is where Jonah was when he told God, I'm so angry, I want to, I want to die. I don't, I don't think so necessarily. I think what happened was Jonah saw the people repent. He knew probably what God was fixing to do. He gets so angry that he's, I'd rather be dead than see this. And now he goes outside of the city and camps out to see. Because remember, what did he say? 40 days. And so perhaps Jonah is going to say, see, okay, they repented, but God doesn't have to not destroy them. He doesn't have to withhold the destruction. You know this, right? While those who have repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that your eternity is secure, the price of your sin, the true punishment of your sin has been paid, the earthly consequences are not guaranteed to be withheld. I want you to think of King David. What happened when the prophet came to him and told him, your son will die because of your sin? He repented. Beautiful, right? 
Psalm 51, I point everybody to Psalm 51. Beautiful picture of repentance. And yet the child died. And so perhaps what Jonah's thinking is, maybe God won't withhold this thing that he's promised is going to come upon them. I don't know. But he says that he went out to the east side of the city. Now, he would have been coming from the west. Because of where Nineveh is, let me reverse it. Because of where Nineveh is, because of where he would have been coming in Cana, he would have come in from the east, excuse me, in from the west and gone out on the east if he just traveled straight through the city. So now he's a far away from home. He's on the other side of the city, and it says that he just posts up there, and he creates for him a, just a simple structure. I'm picturing a lean-to, maybe something like the Jews would have built during the uh, Feast of Booths to commemorate their time in the wilderness when they didn't have a solid, permanent structure there. He's posting up, and he's going to watch what's going to happen, and I'm imagining that he's thinking about something like Sodom and Gomorrah. He's picturing that kind of destruction. I've never seen hellfire falling from heaven, so maybe this will be my chance. Maybe he'll destroy them after all. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that he might that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now again, we, we see this appointed, that God is providentially controlling all of this, the storm, the fish, and now he's concerned for Jonah's discomfort. There's, there's so much about this story that just seems, it just doesn't match. He's wishing destruction on an entire country an entire nation full of people. And what is God's response to this? I see you're hot. Let me give you some shade. Do you see the lavish grace of God? The unmatched mercy. It's not tit for tat here. It's not you've earned this. It's not even, well, I'm just going to do a little bit of good for you. Okay, Jonah, I'll spare your life because you're my prophet. I'll spare your life because I've got a, a job for you to do. He says, no, to care for your comfort to provide for you shade, I will give you this branch. I will give you this vine. I will give you this plant. You know this kind of mercy. You've experienced it. You've experienced it. In those times when you were sinning against God and you knew it, there's this. I've heard people say before, you know, that, that yes, all of, our, all of our sins are forgiven, that all of our sins are paid for in Christ Jesus, but that once we come to Christ, we will never again intentionally sin. That we'll sin accidentally, that we will stumble into sin, that we will ignorantly sin, but that the true child of God will never intentionally sin. I have. I've stared sin dead in its face. I'm not talking about 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I can't think of a particular occurrence where I'd confess it because that's what I do. Embarrass my family by confessing my stuff. But I, I promise you, I can think back to some time within the not-too-distant past when I stared sin dead in its face and said, I choose you. And yet still I found God's mercy there. Still I found his goodness pursuing me. It's something almost so insignificant as this. Not just, that he didn't, not just that he spared me and didn't cast me out of his presence forever. He gave me a cold cup of water and some shade to sit under. Even in the middle of my sin. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. He was exceedingly mad before. Now he's exceedingly glad because of the plant. Because of the plant, he rejoiced with great joy as a more literal translation. But this was about more than shade, I think. I don't want to overstep my bounds. I don't want to go outside the headlights of Scripture. I don't want to. But it seems to me that Jonah is feeling somewhat vindicated in this. See, God's not done with me. God's not cast me out. He seems to know this was supernatural, that this was something that, I don't know if it's because of a particular plant that shouldn't have grown this quick. I don't, I don't really know. It seems to me that this is some type of assurance, false assurance for Jonah that he was right, for, right with God. We've got to be reminded that that cold cup of water, that shade that comes when you need it, those times when God still extends his goodness and his mercy and his grace to you, even in the middle of your sin, you cannot take that to mean that you are right where God would have you to be. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed, there's that word again, he appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. We got him appointing the, the wind, the whale, the plant, 
and now a bug. It only lasted for a day. And what he's lucky, I would imagine, if I was Jonah, he ought to count himself lucky that what God didn't appoint was a lion to come eat his face off. You remember I talked to you about the prophet in 1 Kings 13 who had dishonored God. How did he dishonor God? Did he run from God like Jonah? Did he wish God's curses upon an entire nation like Jonah? Nope. He had a meal in a place God told him to leave. And the response? Lions came and ate him. He's lucky God didn't send an animal to destroy him, and it was only, it was only a bug. Now, what would the proper response have been there? Something like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He gave me this in a day, he takes away in a day. What right do I have to complain about this? Remind me that God has done Jonah no violence in this. God has done Jonah no injustice. And I'm not even talking about the fact that he didn't destroy him like he deserved. I'm saying Jonah's back to square one. You came into this place with nothing. You came into the world with nothing, you're gonna leave with nothing. You came into this wilderness or upon this mountain or wherever you are at this point looking over Nineveh, you came out here with nothing. Whatever little wood, whatever little sticks that you gathered together to build yourself a shelter, that was mine. And I put it there. So what right do you have to get upset with me? And I wish I didn't see so much of myself in Jonah, but I do. I do. We saw ants in our house the other day. Not more than the other day, probably a month ago, something like that, two months ago. We found some ants, like the little ants. I don't know, you just get them in your house. And they're running through the cracks in our, in our floor. I wanted to burn the whole place down. I, I don't handle that stuff well. I'm just going to be honest with you. How could you do this to me, God? How could you bring ants? And Amanda kept telling me, dude, everybody gets ants. What's your problem? I wanted to punch holes in the wall. I said, I gave you this home. You didn't deserve it. I gave you this family. You didn't deserve it. I gave you a few dollars in the bank to go buy some ant bait or whatever all of this is for me if I want to send a meteor from heaven to destroy it all today I've done you no wrong verse 8 when the sun rose God appointed again God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint God controls the wind. That's not news to us. We've already seen him controlling the wind out on the sea. And we've got this, this scorching desert wind that would have come. And they, they tell us that in this part of the world, there's these, there's these winds, Sirocco's, that, that come through and it will just suck all the moisture out of everything along the way. It will really mess you up. We're not talking about just a windy, hot August day here in Texas. We're talking about something that will literally cause you to faint and waste away, oftentimes with the force of a hurricane whipping through the desert. Now, again, remember I told you that we don't need to always look for some type of natural explanation for those supernatural occurrences. We see God working in and through his creation, and he sends this wind, and it says that the sun was in the sky. The sun beat down upon him, and again, just like Jonah in the ocean, we see the hand of God just coming and coming. He's not letting up. He's not letting up, and he asked, this is Jonah, he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. At this point, he's not even worried about Nineveh anymore. He's worried about his own comfort. He's worried about himself right here. And we see the inconsistency with this, right? Jonah was angry that God spared Nineveh. Jonah was angry that God destroyed a plant. You see the silliness here, right? And I want to ask you, what kind of things do you mourn over? Maybe you're not angry at God, but what kind of things have caused you to weep? And how does that compare to the things that you go, huh, that's sad. Anyways... It will say something about your heart, something about where you are. That Jonah would rather these people burn in hell for all eternity, or at the very least have their city burned to the ground, than to have him die in the heat of the wilderness. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He's giving him another opportunity here. A plant now? This is, this is where we are. You're angry about the plant. What we're fixing to learn is that God wasn't just being spiteful. That's not what this was. God wasn't, I'm just going to flex a little bit and show you who's who. I'm going to show you that nobody talks back to me like that, that nobody rejects my plans like that. This is an object lesson from God, that the plant 
and the bug and the wind and the, and the sun, that all of these things were opportunities for God to show Jonah something about himself. And therefore us, as those who sit on this side of the story, something about ourselves. And Jonah said, yes, I'd do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So I'll give Jonah credit for boldness. Again, I say I see myself in this. I, w- I wish I didn't. I'm a two-year-old sometimes. I will cross my arms. I will stick out my lip, and I'll just burn the whole thing down rather than admit I'm wrong. That's where he is. And I can't help but when I read through this to think about the story of the prodigal son, the older brother of the prodigal son. Turn with me, please. Luke 15. We're just going to read the last half of this, right? The prodigal son has already come home. He's already come to himself is what the scripture says. He's repented. He realizes that he's sinned against God and against his father. His father has already received him lovingly into his arms. He has thrown this party for him. And then we read in verse 25, Luke 15, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, was received, he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have obeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, and he is found. I'm going to doubt that any of you in this room are sitting around today wishing destruction on anyone. I would imagine there are probably, you've probably had times in your life when you had a great trouble extending forgiveness to particular people, but certainly not entire nations, I would hope. But I would imagine that every single one of us in this room, we have had those moments when we looked at God's goodness and his grace and his mercy poured out upon those that we decreed, we determined to be the worst of the sinners. And we looked inwardly at our own life and we go, but what about me? God, you're extending all this goodness and all this mercy and all this grace into this. You're celebrating that he's come home. And I've always been here. I'm the church kid. I read my Bible. I say my prayers. I keep my hands to myself. I pay my tithes. What about me? God says, I've always been been with you everything that I have is yours but in my extending of mercy to another and grace to another you would respond begrudgingly like this you can't celebrate with the angels in heaven because you deem them to be a worse sinner a more a more unforgiving sinner a more unworthy sinner than you you reveal that you've always viewed me as a slave master you reveal that all the things that you did for me you did them to try to earn something that you did them begrudgingly. But that was never what this is meant to be. You're meant to just turn and run to me like my other son did. Is there some things to be done here? Sure, but not to earn my favor. Just as an act of love. Just because you want to live a life that pleases me. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up in a night and it perished in a night. Now, pity is a strange word to use for a plant, right? Plants don't have feelings. Plants don't have emotions. If they do, they're usually ones that eat people like little shop of horrors or something like that, right? Like, it's just a plant. But I think it's meant to contrast the plant with the whole nation of Nineveh, right? I think. And implicit within this, it came up in a night and it perished in a night is the idea that it's just, it's worth so much less than my creatures. 
an entire nation, even the cows. I think that's what the cows are like, by the way. Uh, That's what that's all about. When he ends it with talking about the cows, I don't think he's saying that cows shouldn't be destroyed. I think it's one of two things. I think he's either he's saying, look, those cows are for a purpose. They're to feed or they're to, to, to pull a sled or they're to, like there's a purpose in these cows and it's not just to be burned up with fire because of the sins of the people. Or it was to show how silly it is that you're worried over a plant when there's, even before you get to humanity, there's a whole lot better things to worry about. Verse 11, and should I not pity Nineveh that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So it's clear that the people of Nineveh are not innocent. That's, that's not what God is saying, absolutely. God has acknowledged their evil, and he says they don't know their right hand from their left. So some people have wondered, does that mean that what he's talking about here is just the infants, just those people that literally don't know their right hand from their left? And I don't think so, maybe. If that's the case, this is a massive city. Like, we don't even have 120,000 infants in this church, and we got a lot. So if they had 120,000 infants, that means they probably got tens of millions of people, maybe? So I think it's saying there's 120,000 people here, a nice round number, 120,000 people here. They don't know their right hand from their left. Doesn't mean that they're innocent. God has acknowledged their evil when he says that That's why I'm sending you. They're evil. They've done evil things. They know that they're evil. You see, there's some things that Jonah and God, they agree on. These people are evil. Oh, by the way, the Ninevites acknowledge they were evil in their repentance. So everybody's on the same page here. The Ninevites know they're evil. God knows they're evil. Jonah knows they're evil. That's not it. But they were ignorant of the things of God. I think that's what he's saying here. But you remember in Ephesians 2, we haven't gotten there yet in our Sunday morning study, but Ephesians 2.12, Paul says, remember, speaking to the Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They were hopeless. No one had come and proclaimed the the call to repent? Did they know that it was evil deep down within their hearts? Yes, God's moral code is written upon men. They knew this. They knew that they were evil. They knew that they had done wrong. And yet, you see, they were so ignorant that God would say they don't know the right hand from their left. And do you have pity on men like this? Men who don't know the ways of God? Men who didn't grow up in a church or a home where they were constantly taught about the ways of God, the law of God, that didn't have Christian people around them constantly calling them back to repentance. So, I don't know what became of Jonah. Like we're just kind of left with another cliffhanger here, right? I like to imagine that what happened was Jonah's heart was eventually turned back, that eventually a heart like that of Christ took hold of him. Remember that it was Christ that stood over the people that cursed him in Jerusalem and he wept? That's the God of the universe who spoke and said, I don't delight in the destruction of the wicked? That perhaps God got hold of Jonah's heart and he turned it once more. That maybe Jonah was the one that recorded this book for us. That would certainly be something, wouldn't it? I mean, he had to tell the story to somebody. That maybe what happened was he was willing to stand before people and say, this is who I was. Praise God, this is who I am. But that ultimately this story isn't about me and my fate. It's about the sovereign God of the universe working to cause repentance to come in the lives of a sinful and a wicked people despite my failures, despite my weakness. We know that this turning and and believing and what God has said, it didn't last forever because we know that God destroyed the people of Nineveh in the year 612 B.C., basically about 100 years after the point of this, this morning's story, this evening's story. So it seems as though a, a generation, maybe two generations, they followed along this path until the evil grew up again, and this time God destroyed them. So what do we do with this? What are the questions that we ask ourselves as we leave? Number one, have you taken God's goodness and his mercy For granted, have you forgotten what a wretch you were when Christ Jesus came and saved you? Have you forgotten what your sin deserved? Have you forgotten even now on the backside how much everything that you received to him is all of grace and he doesn't owe any more to you tomorrow? 
What does what a stock exchanger say that past performance does not guarantee future returns? I said something in the morning service about having a lot of life insurance because I wanted Amanda, if she decided to marry, if I died and she wanted to marry, that she could marry because she loved the guy, not because she needed a bunch of money. Because there's a certain lifestyle that we've become accustomed to. You're not guaranteed this lifestyle for the rest of your life. And God has done you no violence. He has done you no wrong. If he takes it all from you like that. Number two. Is there any chance that in your heart there is a self-centeredness like Jonah? Is there any chance that there are things in your life that you cherish, that you care for, that you lament over more than lost and dying souls all around you? Does your heart break at the thought that there are people, literally by the millions, who are dying, closing their life, closing their eyes in this life, and opening them to nothing but an eternity of torment? And is your concern for that reality more than just the tip of a hat, a few dollars in a box, and a prayer? Or do you have a burning passion within you to see the lost come to know Christ? Number three, does God's mercy compel yours? It's a very dangerous thing when you find people that are merciless, that are pitiless, that are unforgiving. I'm not saying that you cannot be a believer and struggle with every single one of those things because you can, but it causes me great concern when I see it in myself. Have I truly known the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of Christ and still withheld it from others? Do I truly recognize the debt that he has paid on my behalf while I continue to withhold forgiveness from others? Or have I tasted the goodness of God have I received the mercy and forgiveness of God and I've got a burning fire within my bones that I cannot wait to extend that to others? Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that we can learn from the failures of another. We thank you that the heroes in your, the heroes in your scripture, that you don't polish the edges you don't round off the corners. You show them to us, flaws and warts and all. So that, Father, we can see ourselves here and we can recognize our own faults and flaws and failures and recognize that even in that, you can and you do work. So, Father, I pray that you would cause us to examine ourselves and consider, do we have a heart like Jonah or do we have a heart like Paul? To be a people who are passionate and zealous to see your gospel proclaimed to the nations, beginning in our homes, in our jobs, and in our neighborhoods. That we would boldly proclaim your gospel knowing that for some, by the work of your spirit, you would save them for all eternity. That then we would rejoice with the angels of heaven at knowing that a sinner has repented, that a soul has been saved. Father, I pray your blessing on these people as they go. It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen.